This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and a welcome. And we will get to some of those explosive findings in the Auditor General's report a little later in the show. But first, as we've been reporting since yesterday, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice struck down controversial Bill 124 that capped wage increases for many public sector workers to 1% for three years. Now, this law has been at the center of ongoing labor strife between the public sector unions and the province. And the unions blame much of the labor shortages in our health care system on this bill. The province has signaled its intention to appeal this ruling, despite pleas from the unions to refrain from doing that. So what is the upshot and will this dispute just keep dragging on? And what do you think of it? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and J.P. Hornick, President of OPSU-CEFPO, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union. Welcome and thanks for being with us. Thanks, Libby, for having us back. Okay, let us start with J.P. Hornick, your reaction to the ruling. Oh, I, I mean, it's a complete vindication of the position that the 40-plus unions and associations took in respect to Bill 124. It's a historic victory and uh, a true example of what can be accomplished when workers and unions stand together to protect our charter rights. I think that it can't be overstated uh, the impact that Bill 124 has had on health care, on education, on child care, on our ability to recover from the pandemic and support these systems and frontline workers. Doris, your reaction? Glorious day for democracy, Libby. You and I have spoken so many times about the damning effect of this bill. Uh, It's a glorious day yesterday for workers in in this country because the implications are a message for everybody. Uh, kudos, kudos to the unions that took it on, kudos to the lawyers that defended the unions, and a plea to the Premier to please, please, please move to a new book, a book of allowing the right of unions to negotiate as it should be in a progressive democracy. We live in a democracy, Libby, it's time to move on to being one. JP, I mean, the unions, QP, just had a big victory on a similar issue. And the Ford government, uh, the premier, uh, to quote him, put some water in his wine and he backed off using the notwithstanding clause. Uh, so uh, are you expecting the same thing to happen with this? Well, I mean, you know, I think that you make a good point when you remind the listeners that this is the second time this month that we've actually had a victory in response to the government's overreach around bargaining rights. And these are attacks not just on unionized workers, but on all workers. When the government used the notwithstanding clause around Bill 28 on QB education workers, it's also an attack on the freedom of expression. And what we have to look at here is to make sure that would remind this government, as Doris just noted, that these are attacks on democracy. And they will be met with solidarity among the unions, among community allies, among activists. This is a government that's shown a, a, a remarkable willingness to suspend charter rights. But what we have to remember is the victory is when every person, every worker stands together to say, no, enough is enough. 
Well, it's interesting. I believe the legal basis for this is that a freedom of association, which includes uh, the freedom to bargain. uh, The other thing that I saw is that other legislation, previous legislation that ever limited it, capped it, uh, wouldn't have capped it so low, uh, so much lower than what people would bargain. Um, So, Doris, uh, so far, the government, though, has said they intend to appeal. So we are playing, begging the premier, and I texted to him and left him a message, and I believe the premier needs to take on this the same as he did with QP at the end, not put other people in the front to speak, but actually he needs to reach to his own soul and and, the, and, and and actually deliver on what he said on his acceptance speech when that night that he, he won, that he wants to work with the unions, that he respects workers, and that he is going to govern for all. This is not only the unions. This is not only our associations. The public is on site. The public is on site with this, and the premier knows it. Time to move to a good book where we will serve the province together for the sake of Ontarians being healthy, being in schools, doing good work, and really being a province for all. Um, Interesting, JP. I'm looking at it. If the province does appeal, and a spokesperson for the uh, the Attorney General said they intend to do that, uh, won't they just run out the clock? I mean, this legislation is it was in, is supposed to be in place for three years. I think it expires in in the spring. I mean, is is there a risk of that that they just run out the clock on it? And uh, you've got to wonder why they would do that, but. Yeah, and I mean, I think these last points the appropriate question to ask. Why would you do that? You know, the Justice Conan, there's a couple of key things about his decision. One is that his decision said that even without COVID, even without runaway inflation, on its merits, Bill 124 was unconstitutional. It was also found to be void right now. So we are progressing uh, with the understanding that Bill 124 was not justified. Uh, it, um, you know, did not per- like it did not include reasonable limits on individual rights. It actually prevented collective bargaining. So what we're doing is actually saying 124 is of no effect as of right now, which means we need to begin bargaining. We need to begin revisiting those hundreds of collective agreements that have wage reopener clauses. And we need to behave as though Bill 124 never existed. So they can try and run out the clock. But Justice Conan's decision was pretty clear. Bill 124 from the start violated our charter rights, and we need to behave as such. Uh, Do you think that uh, maybe a motive might be that they're trying to protect themselves from uh, demands for back pay, either one of you? So I, I can comment on that, and of course I will let my comment, my colleague uh, 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 share his, the expertise. I think um, the, 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 the court decision said they will review all the remedies and, and talk about that, and the unions for sure will review what they are asking. But today is the day when the premier needs to come out and say that he will not appeal this decision of the court, because today is the day that actually the premier needs to make a decision with everything else going on, as you hinted, the AG report, et cetera, that he needs to start to make peace at home, healing, and not and not causing additional hurt. We have a lot of instability. I don't need to tell you, Libby, you know we have been together talking about this with many guests. You have been on the instability of the health sector, uh, on the hurt of healthcare workers, all of them, uh, nurses in particular, uh, people that have given it all, teachers, as, as my colleague just said, teachers, uh, education workers in general, childcare workers, nurses, uh, midwives, everybody has given it all to this province. It's time to give back to the workers and it's time to 
give back to Ontarians. And Ontarians cannot afford more instability in the health sector. Okay, let's take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you so much. Mr. Ford, Bill 124 and Bill 23 has to go. 1% raise is inhumane. Wasting taxpayers' money and taxing taxpayers to debt should be a crime. Thanks. Okay, Sita, thanks for that. Thank you. And uh, Bill 23, we were talking about that just yesterday. I'm sure we'll talk about that tomorrow, and that is the new municipal bill that the critics say will download a lot of cost onto municipalities and hence property taxes, but we'll leave that one for tomorrow. People, if you want to talk about the uh, ruling on the bill that capped wage increases for many public sector workers, mostly in healthcare and education at 1%, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And J.P. Hornick, is is there um, a possibility of some kind of, I don't know, deal where might they say, okay, we won't appeal if you agree not to go for back pay? You know, I can't predict uh, the next steps for this government, to be honest. What I can say is, you know, to see this point, uh, that we are looking at choices that are being made around how this government spends money. The money has been there from the outset in order to fund wage increases in a reasonable way. Justice Coden himself noted at the time, the government said it would cost $400 million in 2019 to actually, you know, go over a 1% wage increase. Now, Justice Conan noted that the license uh, sticker rebate or cancellation itself would have saved the government, you know, $1.2 billion had they not canceled that, that they'd given out tens of millions of dollars in, or, or tens of billions of dollars in tax cuts. Just this October, the Financial Accountability Office said that the government has $44 billion in unallocated contingency funds over six years. Those are cuts to programs. And the surplus that's anticipated by 2026 is $40 billion. We have right now underspent $3.5 billion in the first half of 2022. This isn't about uh, whether the money exists. This is about the choice of the government to invest in healthcare and education. They haven't spent $859 million on healthcare at the same time we're, we're in a healthcare crisis, $413 million on education, and they're saying that education workers deserve, you know, a dollar an hour, but no additional investment. Those are political choices that make no sense whatsoever in this current moment. Well, I mean, they have their own uh, form of accounting, and uh, there are increases in those budgets according to their numbers. Uh, but they also say, Doris, they say we have to save for a rainy day. A lot of economists are expecting a recession, and I guess that is the argument. What do you say to that? There is no saving in the back of people that are vulnerable with illnesses. That is a absolute uh, infringement on uh, the rights of people to access health services. People now are struggling already with that. Uh, so if you want to save money, uh, Premier Ford, uh, Minister of uh, Finance, and all of, all of our government, save it in uh, giving tax cuts to those that are wealthy. The, 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 the way to save dollars on the backs of vulnerable people, whether it's kids go, that need to go to school, whether it's kids with, with whether it's ODSP that you and I have spoken, whether it's compensation for workers for a rightful, a rightful negotiation. That's what our unions are asking, do not save on their backs because you are shortchanging not only the workers, but the people of Ontario 
on the services that they need to receive desperately. Okay, I'm going to take another call from Jim in Toronto. Hi, Jim. Hey, Libby, how are you? Fine, go ahead, you're I on just, the air. Uh, I, I'm so glad for your show to have a voice out, and, and I, I feel for all the people that are on your show and I hear their frustration. And i just like to say that Doug Ford, I can't stand the guy. Like, I wish people would realize that this guy wants to privatize everything. He's, he's sabotaging health care. He wants to privatize it. He's a moneymaker. That's all he is. He's corrupt. And I don't know how he won the election. Just because he won people, the election with a big majority, no, by I the way. I know that. But people, Canadians, are so passive. They just hear the name Doug Ford. And oh, I know his name. Let's vote for him. The guy is... He's corrupt. He's, well, yeah, okay, wait. Uh, you know, we uh, I mean, I you don't like him, but, way, Libby, but we, I don't. we don't have to say that he's, you know, uh, make accusations that are not proven. Um, I get that you don't and like. And if I may comment on yeah. that, Livy, because I agree with you, we need to have respectful relationships. Yeah. The premier run one with the landslide majority. The premier also said, and many of us were listening to that speech when he won the elections, that he will work for all Ontarians. And this is where our colleague is one of all Ontarians. And so the premier needs now to deliver on deeds, not only on speeches, and he needs to move to a good page and 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 build a, a, a Ontario for all that is amicable, that people receive the services that they desperately need and not bring more instability. Well, it, it's interesting. <laughs> Honestly, I have to say, you know, one of the best things about the Premier is that he is willing to back off of things that are clearly not working and clearly turning people against his government. Though in this case, like you've got to wonder that coming so close to that QP ruling, um, you've got to wonder, maybe the attorney general hasn't uh, heard the word from on high. Um, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, again, I'm wondering kind of, you know, what's, what exactly would be going on here? And, and uh, interesting, yesterday I was talking to a Mississauga city councillor about the impact of, of some things on Bill 23, which is municipal, uh, the housing bill where they are relieving de- developers of a lot of, uh, their fees, which will then devolve onto cities. And, and she was talking about, uh, their QPing it and they're hoping that, uh, the government will back off in the same way they did in the QP dispute. So, um, the, I, I mean, it just all seems to be coming together a bit. I have to comment on that. I mean, one, as an old English teacher, I love the fact that QP is being used as a verb now, right? But the notion of QPing it in this case is literally one of people coming together to say, we're done, enough's enough, stop with the intrusion. And I agree with you. I think that the path out of this is to actually sit down with public sector labor leaders, drop the appeal, so that workers can actually, you know, negotiate a wage where, as Justice Conan said, that, you know, they, we can play it out in the court of public opinion if we need to. We can sway in order to build that power at the table so that our workers are actually not just being told they're heroes, but being compensated and providing working conditions that reflect the incredible sacrifices that they've made over the past two and a half years. I think we all agree that parents shouldn't be having to sit outside high schools uh, to support their kids who have who need accommodations because there aren't enough education assistance. We shouldn't have, you know, the crisis that we have in children's ICUs and children's hospitals in a you know normal flu season because people are being driven out. We shouldn't have these, you know, intense... not sure it's a normal flu season, but uh... well, yeah, no, but I mean, you know, it's a flu season that we could have predicted was going to be harder as a result of COVID. You know, this government has had, you know, one full term and the beginning of another to actually start to fix the problems in healthcare. And instead, they've exacerbated that crisis. Let's just put that Bill 124 did nothing to help healthcare workers from our respiratory technologists to our lab techs to our nurses. 
in getting the supports they need to attract and retain the talent that we need, the experience that we need to provide those services that Ontarians count on. You know, uh, speaking of the uh, QPing of, of things, uh, how important do you think it was that some of the unions that that uh, the government kind of allied with during the election campaign that that endorsed them, you know, the construction unions, uh, they were also on side. Like, do you need those people on side to try to change the trajectory of this? I think for sure we need that kind of solidarity in the labor movement and the government is, you know, showing this willingness to overstep repeatedly. Bill 128, as you just talked about, the, you know, strong mayor bill, that these are attacks on democracy and they should unite not just labor unions, but frankly, all Ontarians. I mean, these are things that really get at the root of what kind of society do we want to have? What kind of voice should people have in their government, in their ability to express themselves? Downloading taxes and, you know, moving profits into the hands of your developer friends, you know, this is not a good look right now. And so I think it does unite uh, unions, but it also unites uh, community allies, too. And and to build on that, if I may, uh, we are in a very, very delicate situation. The the health sector is already unstable as it is. We cannot afford any more threats. Uh, there are threats to the health sector that come with viruses that we don't even know what can come next, let alone the virus of Bill 124 that should have been gone, should have been gone the day, the, should have never existed. And then, as the Premier knows, because we, we were asking from day one of the pandemic should have been gone then, now is the time to come out and say we are not continuing this fight. We are moving to a different page, and today is the day for the Premier to say that. Okay. Uh, so, again, J.P. Hornick, where where does this leave things? Uh, you know, what what is the next move, assuming that they go ahead with an appeal as they have signaled? You know, I think that if they decide to go ahead with the appeal, and my understanding is they're reviewing it now and haven't announced a, a solid decision on that, I think, you know, the easier road that we could all take would be to work together. Uh, to try and find a path through that's going to work for workers uh, and that, you know, demonstrates the unions are standing together. I am excited to be working with labor leaders, with community allies uh, to to find that way forward and, you know, would invite uh, Doug Ford and his government to join us in recognizing that unconstitutional legislation that should never have been passed is now gone and we need to look forward, not backwards. Uh, Doris, uh, last 20 seconds to you. Uh, Premier, it's your turn. Come together. Don't appeal this decision. It's time to move on, and we want to move together. Okay. Uh, We are wrapping up this segment. We're going to take a break. Um, Doris will be continuing with us as we discuss some of the findings in the Auditor General report just uh, about an hour ago, totally fresh. Uh, In the meantime, and thank you so much, J.P. Hornick, for being with us. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Lizzie. And uh, we're taking that break now. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As you've heard in Bob's News, we have explosive findings from the Ontario Auditor General on the province's COVID-19 vaccine rollout. The report says it was uncoordinated and wasteful leading to thousands of doses being unused. So the Ontario Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, said the province's vaccine system actually favored those with better access to technology. It duplicated its functions across different systems and failed to adequately prioritize areas identified as hotspots. And uh, doctors 
were paid five times as much as nurses for administering vaccines and family doctors were underutilized. So, so get this, the family docs, uh, would have been paid $13 a dose if they gave out those doses in their offices and five times more if they went to, uh, you know, those, those big areas where the vaccines were given out. Okay, uh, uh, let, let me get through this. The report points to pharmacies and private vaccine delivery clinics as the biggest culprits behind discarded doses. So overall, as Bob said, Ontario wasted about 9%. The pharmacies were responsible for wasting about 2%, 2 in 10 doses. But I think because they had so much of the rollout, that that's why most of it was on them. Hospitals wasted just 1%. But public health units wasted 4% of their doses. So Lissick's report also points the finger at two private sector companies that were contracted by the Ford government to deliver vaccines, which ultimately wasted between 20 and 50%, 57% of the doses delivered to them. FH Health which was responsible for administering doses at nine locations across Toronto, wasted 3,223 doses during a two-month period, according to this report. And further, it administered only a small percentage of the tests it was capable of handling. And I don't know if you remember when we needed testing for travel, like the, the tests that they gave, and I, I'm not familiar with the exact, uh, the exact stipulations of the contract, but they were really expensive. Uh, so there is an awful lot to delve into here, and this is just a small part of the report. So let me give the numbers out again, because people, I'm sure we all can remember what it was like at the beginning where the vaccine follies, where everybody was scrambling to try and get vaccinated. And we had those huge lineups at pharmacies and, and booking systems that went down and all of that. So the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the Auditor General's panning of the Ontario vaccine rollout. And what was your experience? Uh, remember when we were all really scrambling to try to get those shots? Right now, I'm joined by NDP, MPP, and health critic, Frangelina, and Dr. Doris Greenspoon remains with us. Hello, and thank you very much, both of you. Oh, looking forward to uh, listening to the question. Nice to talk to you, Libby. Okay, nice to talk to you, Franz. So, uh, you know, what do you make of this criticism? Well, um, I will start by saying I just came out of question period where I get to ask questions to the Minister of Health. When I brought forward that question, um, basically um, was, you know, like, could we have done better coordinating the rollout? Could we have done better making sure that we had a, a uh, decision-making tool that told us, who to prioritize for vaccine rollout that wasn't followed, uh, do you think we could have done better? The Minister of Health exploded in anger against the uh, Auditor General, uh, saying that uh, uh, she does not agree with the Auditor General and uh, that uh, they did everything perfect. Uh, it was not a good start. It was not a good start. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I've i never met Sylvia Jones, but she seems to be, uh, I don't know, maybe she uh, gets angry a lot. Um, <laughs> she was Dor this morning anyway. D Doris, what's your initial reaction to these findings? I'm not surprised at any of them. Uh, I brought those issues of concern directly to the Premier, directly uh, to previous Minister of Health, uh, directly to all the large organizations, 
you may remember that Arenio disclosed uh, the secret deal that then uh, the hospital association had with uh, the OMA uh, in relationship to the payouts. I was uh, hugely attacked at the time as being territor- territorial, et cetera, et cetera. I was not being territorial. I was thinking nurses always are the ones providing the vaccine. Uh, RNs, RPNs, nurse practitioners, why all the sudden are we give- and, and by the way, primary care and public health is never hospitals. Why are all the sudden we providing to hospitals the vaccines? That will be a fiasco. And why to doctors when uh, they are going to be paid way more and for no good reason? An injection <laughs> that has been given, a vaccine that has been given always by nurses should be given by nurses. And pharmacies we introduced a few years ago and we supported that just because it's an easier way of accessing primary care, pharmacy, public health. But hospitals that need to be kept for what hospitals do best, which is acute care for people. Okay. Uh, you know, um, for some of the wastage, I mean, I'm remembering back that at least initially, uh, the, there were a certain number of doses in the vials and you had to give them all out or if you had two left in a vial, it was wasted. So I'm kind of remembering that. I'm remembering, uh, you know, at, First, when there was talk of this really complicated refrigeration, so maybe there were some doses uh, that went astray there. And I mean, France, just in general, it was a huge crisis that no one was prepared for. So is there anything in this that they get a pass for? Not on that one, because we also pointed out that that was inaccurate. You may remember that at the time they used Israel and a few other countries as examples. Israel did all their vaccination in primary care in large sites. Also, they set up whether it was direct primary care or large sites where nurses came to give the vaccines. Uh, they didn't have the big refrigeration. We knew by the company that that was uh, a, a not accurate. Uh, so no, no, there was no rhyme or reason to what was done except of giving to the hospitals the coordination of it for reasons that, uh, probably I could, I could guess only now, which is that they gave them to doctors specialists. In fact, was not even family doctors, was specialists that instead of doing surgeries because they were cancelled, they went to do vaccines at five times. Uh, the, the, the rate that taxpayers would have paid nurses. No good rhyme or reason for any of it, Libya, no excuses. It was a fiasco, and it set back primary care, I don't know for, for how many years now, it set it back to a role where primary care needs to be at the centerpiece of the system. It put it in the, in the basement of the system. Uh, it also set up uh, public health back, and public health always has run vaccination and very effectively. Well, you know, I'm remembering that there were a couple of hospitals that were much more efficient in giving out those doses and also in taking doses to the community, say to seniors and seniors buildings. So I do remember a few examples of that. And um, I guess, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of the doctor's offices, but I'm also remembering that a lot of the doctor's offices were closed. And even though I know my doctor talked about renting a space off-site from the office, I don't think that they wanted a lot of patients in their waiting rooms to get vaccinated. Am I uh, misremembering this, Paul? Well, uh, I will bring you back to to the question you ask and then go to that one. Um, You will remember SARS where we had um, um, many cases. We had uh, healthcare workers who died. We had Ontarian who died. After this, we we did an inquiry. We look back, and uh, strong recommendations were made to say, what do we need to do to prepare for the next pandemic? Right. So a plan was put together, and a lot of really smart people look at how do we get ready. We know there will be one. We don't know when. We all know there will be one. What should we do to get ready? 
and we were not ready whatsoever. You will remember that Ontario was still paying $3 million a year renting warehouses full of PPE that had expired. <laughs> uh, not only uh, they had bought back in the two th- year 2000 the PPEs, they never managed this inventory. They never did anything with it. They just paid uh, some private lucky guy $3 million to use his warehouse and did nothing with it. Uh, and we canceled the early warning system, and that was on the Liberals. Correct. Correct. Uh, all of this was on the Liberal. Um, I mean, the Auditor General did a report back in 2014 telling them, hey, you have to do something. Those PPEs are coming to, are about to expire. Why don't we send them to our hospital and, and long-term care home that use PPEs on, on an ongoing basis because of the flu, because of all of this, uh, rather than let them expire? None of that was done. Uh, so, uh, COVID came. We were not ready. Uh, the people that have the knowledge and skills to, to manage a pandemic are mainly in public health. They were, the premier put a, uh, advisory table together and there was zero public health expert on his, uh, in, on his advisory table. Uh, there were uh, many for-profit manufacturer, but zero public health expert. And, and then, um, the Auditor General goes back and look at where did the money go, how did things get rolled out, uh, tell us about waste of money, tell us about uh, not following their own protocol as to which community should is at high risk and should get access to the vaccine first. None of this was followed uh, by the government. And, and when you point out those facts, uh, they just get angry and aggressive and don't answer uh, so again, I, I, uh, Doris obviously does not think they get a pass on any, any, everything because, or on anything because it was all new and everybody was just kind of, uh, flummoxed. And I, I am also thinking about the federal government. So for instance, when there was a uh, chaos in getting money out, people kind of gave them a pass because they said, they got money out and so they wasted some. So again, France, uh, do they get a pass on anything because of that? They, they knew when, when any, all of the bureaucracy of the Ministry of Health was there back in 2014. Uh, we knew that we needed a, um, some kind of a computer-assisted way to know which Ontarian has been vaccinated for what, for what. We did not have that. They ended up spending millions of dollars to do something that we all knew since way before needed to be done. Uh, so, um, and, and when the auditor looks at it, it's always the same thing. The private sector made a ton of money through the pandemic, wasted a ton of taxpayers' money and uh, and government's resources, and we could have done better had we listened to public health experts who know how to whose job it is to handle a pandemic. Well, public health, uh, their record for wasting vaccine doses was not fabulous. The four percent is higher than pharmacies wasted. They also they also handle uh, millions of doses uh, more than than what the uh, uh, and and in great part the auditor goes into uh, details for that was that remember at the beginning we did not have a booking system uh, so the uh, health unit had a booking system uh, the pharmacy had a booking system the hospital had a booking system some part of Ontario were rolled out a province wide booking system. So a lot of people were shopping around to see when can I get the soonest appointment and also shopping around because some would prefer one manufacturer vaccine over the other and then did not show up. Uh, given that health units were the one with the most appointments, they were also the ones seeing the most canceled appointments. Uh, not good, not good. We should have had a a booking system and a province-wide booking system from the start. We well, uh, yeah, we it, I that, remember one that cr- acted upon. I remember 
crashes. Yep. And yeah, crashes and and again the vaccine follies because I I I mean people were desperate to get vaccines. I going back Libby if I may um you know the fact that nurses were paid five times less than physicians is is obscene and it was well known government and OHA were well aware of this, and yet this comes today in the back of Bill 124. One more reason to say to the Premier, do not please appeal the decision of the court. It's time to make amends with public service employees. Doctors were kept away from Bill 124. Doctors are paid five times more for the same vaccine that nurses give. Time to get back to the book and put people where they belong, the respect platform for all healthcare professionals. And time to not find excuses, this government or the previous for that matter. We need to have PPE ready to go because these, these epidemics and pandemics will come more often than not to us. Uh, we know that it's not, it's not a, a fear mongering. It's a fact. So we need to be ready and we cannot all the time think everything is new. Because well, it's, not it's, everything is new. It is we interesting. didn't utilize at all home care. They almost shut down home care. We connected with the government directly a gazillion of times that home care nurses going to see people in their homes to vulnerable people that couldn't come out of home instead of having them go into wheelchairs or other means to get the vaccine that these same nurses that were seeing them could have given the vaccine. There are so many improvements that takes nothing and saves people's um, tensions and, and stress and also saves dollars. You know what? Honestly, uh, you know, I remember hearing from people about that and uh, there, there were a lot of home care workers that did not want to go into people's houses. Uh, so there were issues with, with that no as well. PPE, if you remember, Libby, for Pardon? home care workers. Uh, PPE. And, and uh, one of the things in this report, uh, and we're going to have to take another break in a minute, was that uh, the Auditor General said there's a lot of PPE hanging around now and you better have a plan on how to use it before it expires. But right now we're going to take another break. We're going to come back with more on this because I think it's uh, really important. And people, I would like to hear from you. I remember he- having so many conversations with our listeners about trying to get a vaccine and what it was like and where they finally got it and where their booking finally came up. So, uh, you know, cast your minds back to that and let me know what you think about the findings of the Auditor General, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be back with more on this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been talking about the hot off the press Auditor General's report and specifically her report on the vaccine rollout, especially at the beginning, which uh, she called chaotic and uh, disorganized. I, I didn't see anything about uh, the work of uh, General Rick Hillier. Remember, there was a lot of fanfare with that appointment to supervise the Ontario vaccine rollout or whatever he did. Uh, France, was there any mention of that? And, and what do you think of the job that he did? Um, I don't think I saw it in the report either. Uh, you will remember that the vaccine came out, um, I'm going by memory, um, December 19th, uh, just, just before Christmas. I mean, in Quebec, by the time Christmas rolled around, they had already vaccinated all of their long-term care residents. Us, uh, we took a 
a holiday and started vaccinating back only in January when, I mean, we were in the midst of the second wave. Uh, We were still looking at death in our long-term care home every single day due to COVID, and we were not ready. We had known since June that vaccine would become available. Other provinces got ready so that the minute uh, one dose was available. They had their priority. They had their nurses line up and they had the most vulnerable line up. None of that happened in Ontario. I was under the impression that a part of that problem was that when uh, Anita Anand ordered those vaccines, uh, she didn't order that much for December. The orders were to come in in the new year. Am I wrong? Uh, we, You're right that a lot uh, the shipments at the beginning were very small. Uh, the federal government tried to make an equitable distribution to uh, every provinces because they were the one purchasing the vaccine, and they tried to make an equitable distribution of small batches. But when they came to Ontario, even if we were only getting a few thousands at the time, that's, you know, like a few thousand elderly people in long-term care that could have been vaccinated but nothing happened. The few thousand that went into Quebec were used like within days. They were ready. The minute a vaccine would come in, they had their nurses line up. They had the priority. They were rolling out. In Ontario, we knew since August that they were going to come. We knew the number of vulnerable people in our long-term care home that were getting COVID, that were dying from COVID, and, and nothing happened. So, no, I'm not too impressed with the uh, preparedness that he brought to uh, Ontario. Hmm. Uh, Doris, do you have anything to say about the general? Uh, No, we actually communicated with him both directly and through the media that we didn't need to take vacation. If you remember, they said that he he said at one point at the beginning that healthcare workers wanted to, needed a relief. We never asked for that. We were 24-5-7 anyways. And our colleagues wanted to roll out vaccines to see the end of this uh, disaster, right? So, no, it was no good preparedness. But let me say, this continues to this day when you look at the vaccination for children and how long it took to actually roll that out. And, And even family doctors were really advocating to really let us do it, let us do it. Nurses were pediatric, uh, children hospitals were begging. Uh, so this is this continues. This is not just the Auditor General report now. It continues to be slow in happening. Look at the issue of bringing back masks uh, because of the situation with uh, children hospitals. So it, it, it's about the rollout of it's about public health measures basically, Libby. We are slow in delivering at a time that we are exhausted and we cannot be slow at delivering because if one thing we need to slow down is the spread of the virus, the spread of the flu, and the spread of everything else. But part part of it that, uh, at least currently, is that the public doesn't want public health measures. Well, how, how we stopped all the really excited um um, advertising and lobbying to the public and working with the public in a beautiful way, which we did at the beginning of the vaccination. When the premier was talking, everybody was talking. They were all those uh, going to communities. We, by the way, sent already a letter to uh, Dr. Moore, begging Dr. Moore, asking Dr. Moore, to again go to communities. This is not the hospitals going to communities. Levy Public Health has done it all along. We can do it. Primary care can go to the communities. It's not just in the clinics, which, uh, you know, we mentioned before. We want to go to vulnerable communities at the end of the day. They are the ones that are suffering the most. They are the ones that the people are working in three, four, five places to make the means and cannot run to to any to anywhere to get their vaccine. So whether it's the flu vaccine, the the booster for COVID for children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, we need to get moving now, and we need to get moving and learn from this report to do better. And we can, and we are ready. Um, interesting, France. So you were in question period, and uh, the health minister said she she doesn't accept any of this. Uh, 
it's it's a very different tone. You know, when Christine Elliott was health minister, I'm assuming she would have said, uh, she's got to read it carefully. And of course, uh, we'll look at it. Um, it. There seems to be, I don't know, um, we had a very kind of hardline government right at first. And then uh, we had uh, PCs 2.0. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I would say that you are right, uh, that in previous government, very, very few ministers ever said that they do not trust the facts that the Auditor General puts in her report. When they did, uh, they worked with the auditor to, to say, hey, look, there's more information on something. It happened once in the 15 years that I have been there that a minister said that they did not agree with the fact. But this morning, I mean, the, the opening question was, you know, like, um, why didn't you work with public health? Uh, and uh, to make the rollout more efficient. It, it was not like a partisan question or anything. I, I quoted from the report, and she exploded in saying that uh, none of this, she does not agree with any of this, uh, that they did a fabulous job, that Ontario is the best, and anybody who said otherwise is wrong. Hmm. And, uh, hmm, um, so this is new. Um, that kind of behavior has not been seen in the 15 years I've been at Queen's Park who, before. Who was, the, who was it 15 years ago? I, I'm trying to remember. I knew you were going to ask me. <laughs> uh, it was a liberal minister. I think... It probably was George Smitherman. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> well, I am good because I was there with him. Um, but but I, 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 I don't know. I was not in the legislature today, and I haven't watched it. Uh, I, I find it um, unsettling if the minister indeed said uh, she doesn't agree with anything, and, and I take what France is saying for in fa- face value because I have no reason not to believe she's very trustable too. Uh, but always there is something to learn. Always, 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 always. Uh, the AG doesn't just do reports with the intent to criticize. It's with the intent to do things better, to learn for the future. And if it's nothing to learn, we will never do better. And that's a problem, right? That is, that is then an attitudinal government problem, if that's really what, what transpired today. So I would ask Minister Jones, and again, I meet with her. I have a good relationship to read carefully the report and to offer to the public and to all of us, how we can do better, because we must do better. Okay, Doris, we, Doris we are out of time, uh, but if you have that conversation with her, I hope you let us know how it goes. <laughs> In the meantime, I've got to wrap things up. Thanks so much, France Jelina and Dr. Doris Greenspoon. And we'll be following up more on this. And again, I... I I think people are just digesting this, but I really want to hear from people like, just cast your mind back, remember what it was like, and uh, tell me what you think in light of these findings. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.